0: the historic library at Glenwood Springs, now converted to a children's classroom. Well, this Sunday, we've got the third sign and the seven signs that Jesus has sort of performed for us. And this this one's kind of an interesting one. Now, Merle, uh, I had to pick up because his car is in the shop this morning, and we were talking about what the sermon was on today. And chapter 5 has this... um it, It starts with this scene that Kelly read for us, and then if you really read chapter 5, there's this very long discourse about who Jesus is and his relationship to the Father. It's one of the most, uh, Christologically is the theological word for it, one of the most thick descriptions of who Jesus is and whose relationship is to this one he calls father, this one he knows is the God who gives life to all and calls out people from the grave, that that's sort of where this passage goes into, and it was kind of caught in the the, do we go far down that road, or do we stick with the the sign at hand? And what I kind of decided is we'll stick with the sign at hand, but know that in the background, this sign is is the impetus to some greater discussion about who Jesus was and is. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this who who knows if they grew up with a King James Bible, so it's not it's not limited by age. Lots of different people. And so we were sitting at Bible study this week, and David asked me, what's the sermon on? And I said, oh, the healing at the pool at Bethesda." And he said, oh man, I really, nobody's ever done anything interesting with that angel thing, the angel that troubles the waters, right? And me being a good pastor, I was like, I had no clue what he was talking about. But me being a good pastor, I faked it. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I know about that. And then And then I'd heard this before at my last church. People would reference this when talking about this healing. And I would just be like, I'm supposed to know everything. I'm fine. I got this. Oh, yeah, I guess. Like, it must have been some weird Bible study thing that people used to talk about. Turns out, it's a textual thing. So there are copies of the Gospel of John that contain this passage that an angel troubles the water, and that's why this man has to jump in it to be healed. But... It turns out that most people today don't put those. So if you have an NIV today or the Gospel of John that Kelly read today, and never having had a King James growing up or never really, really read through one, I had no idea what that scene was or what it was about. Uh, I was faking it. I acted like I knew what was going on, right? Yeah, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that thing. I'll be talking about that for sure. Um, Turns out I won't be, because it's not in there, and it was why it caught me off guard, and I've heard it before. And so if you're used to that, that the angel troubles the waters, and then the first person to get in is healed, that's sort of a textual sort of error that seems to come about later. And the way that they add it in doesn't seem, it seems either they're presenting the oral tradition of what they thought happened there, or they may actually believe that happened. But I don't think, just because even if it showed up in the Almighty King James, that you actually have to believe that this is an angel just doing this for one person by troubling the waters. Like It seems like it's presented in a way that almost is like, this is what people say happened at that time. And not only that, this is a side note to the side note, that there's a Roman sort of God that sort of takes over this place at a later period in time, and so it seems like there's some conversation going on there, is that they're saying, no, it's an angel, and for the Romans when they took over this area, it's, no, it's it's uh, I can't remember the name of the god. So so there's a conversation going on within the text already, but but no, I don't have a lot to say about that. Even though it took longer than I thought to not say a lot about that passage. But if you have a King James today or a, a Bible like that, know that that there's reason why that's not quite referenced as often as it should be. But this is a this is a weird scene. The first first thing that if you notice is that if you're one of Jesus' disciples, you could be like. I would deflect him on the Sabbath. Like, well, let's not do wrong things on the Sabbath. Because it seems like if you've read Mark or Matthew or Luke, and and this is in John, that Jesus always does something on the Sabbath that upsets the religious leaders of his day. He always seems to to do something that causes a problem. And so, like, if you think... um, this is not an attempt to be political, but people who are like, if we could get our president off Twitter, that would be better. Like, You would think one of the disciples would be like, my job is to make sure he doesn't offend somebody on the Sabbath because he's going to get killed if he keeps doing this. Like, So you can imagine the person who's trying to take the phone away from the celebrity or ever who tweets things and, and loses things all the time, Like, that you would keep him busy. And so it is interesting, he does go to Jerusalem at this feast on this day, and where they end up is not the place where you would think you would go. Jesus always seems to participate in the religious life of Israel, of Judaism. But he ends up at this place, and what it says in John's gospel is it's full of invalids and people blind and lame. It might have been their idea, let's distract Jesus and bring him here instead of the temple, because what trouble could he get into here? Turns out Jesus always finds a way to make trouble in these scenes. And so this is one of the most controversial parts about this passage for us is that Jesus sees one. There's a whole room full of them. And he says to the one, do you want to be made well? I think there's this thing in our Christian life that we think Jesus goes around just doing good things and healing people. And so we too, our jobs is to be busy. I mean, Christianity, I think, if you were to sum it up, witnessing it from the outside, there are two things Christians are. They're nice, which is... Jesus doesn't seem to be that good at that one, and they're busy. Um, But what Jesus is always saying about these signs is that they don't actually mean the thing you think it means, but the words of life that I have, what's contained within me, the access to what you have when you believe and trust in my word, these are the realities that really matter. And so we think, well, it would be important to follow Jesus into this place, and it is. It is important to find ourselves among the hospitals and the, and the wounded places of the world with those without it. But if we think our only goal is there is to provide healing, to provide comfort, it doesn't seem like that's Jesus' only goal. Otherwise, you would think he'd heal all the people there. But he only talks to one, and he says, do you want to be made well? Now, I don't know what this might have meant in the context. Do you want to be made well? But if you sit with me as a pastoral counselor, if you sit with me as a pastoral therapist, my first question, no matter what your problem is, do you want to get better? So when I do marriage counseling, when I do um, uh, grief counseling, when I do any of that, I'm always like, do you want to get better? I don't know what Jesus is asking when he asks this question to the guy, but there are lots of people, and there are lots of people who are thrown off by that question when I ask it, but some people are like, not sure. What are the steps to get better? What do I need to do to get better? There are, there are times in our lives where I think we would rather not get better where we would rather waste away in our own sorrow, in our own pity, in our own lament, in our own addictions, in our own frustration, rather than get better. It's an important question that I think overhangs this text today, is do we want to get better? Do we want to receive the life on the other side? Because it says that this man's been invalid for 38 years, which is quite an identity in quite a long time. Do you want to get better if he gets better can he still lay and receive alms as people go into this place can he still like there's a is anybody watching the good place on cbs (laughs) i don't know why i say on cbs it just pops into my head um there's it's about can can these people do enough good things to go to heaven and then if you do too many bad things you go to hell and they add it all up it's a fascinating show Um, But one of the things that nobody's gotten into heaven, the good place, in the last 500 years, I guess a spoiler alert, so if you're going to watch it, sorry. Um, uh, Nobody's gotten into heaven in the past 500 years because life has gotten so complicated that it doesn't, you can't add up to good things. And so they look at one guy who went and bought a tomato, and it was a fair trade tomato, which was a good choice. He got 10 points for that, but it was minus 1,000 because it came from some slave labor farm, and it was transported here on some big oil ship, which destroyed the environment and this, that, and the other. And so it actually turned out that by buying like a good, rightful tomato, he had actually made a bad choice and had, had sort of canceled out all the good things he was doing. Why did I tell you that story? <laughs> there was a point to that because it was even in my head earlier in the week. We were talking about the: Do you want to get better? Um, well, there's a chance that our actions. Oh yeah, 38 years. Like, so if you were to able to heal somebody who had been an invalid for 38 years, let's say had not gone to school, had no job skills, and this, would you actually be doing them a good thing? Which is one of the questions we would have in the modern world, right? It's a, it's a, it's a in some sense a dumb question right but like oh I healed somebody who was an invalid great but now they're homeless and nobody wants to help them anymore because they're 38 years old and have no job skills or life training so what did you do Um, this this is a it's a fascinating way of thinking about like what does it mean to heal somebody what do you want to get well I mean we think obviously on one level of course you want to get well of course you want to get out of what you're stuck in but it's not always that clear I mean, as, 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 as many of if, if you guys know, I, I suffer from uh, multiple sclerosis. Uh, suffer, it's weird. It's fine almost all the time. But the, the fact is, is that as they get better drugs for it, it's like, what part of identity of myself do I lose if they just completely cure it? Like, well, one, sermon illustrations, but two... Um, other aspects of like, oh, I'm one who suffers with this thing. There's things I think about because of it. There's a relationship to my body that's definitely changed because of this. There's all sorts of things. And so to just have that taken away, there's there's something lost there, right? It's not entirely just like, oh, now I feel better, right? There's there's something that I've been doing for long enough. And this is, this is not as bad as being an invalid for 38 years, but also not as uh, bad to get better, right? Like, it's not as bad of, like, that would maybe be something you'd be like, I want to get better for sure. Um, but mine is not that bad. But I, you know, all that to say is we have lots of reasons why we don't want to be made well. Do you want to be made well? Um and so as we think about this, and, and one of the things that I wanted to talk about today was, was sort of use this passage as a refresher on the gospel in the ways that we can understand it, and I think in a positive way as being heirs of the Protestant Reformation, is this distinction between law and gospel, right? So law is something that tells you you must do things, you must perform in this way, you must um, act this way, you must earn these things, So if your pastor says you should be doing this more, there's a good chance he's actually doing law, right? If he says we are people who believe and trust in what God has done for us and this has changed our lives, that's more like gospel, right? And so what happens when Jesus says, do you want to be made well, is this person actually responds sort of with a law-like mindset. No one is here to help me into the pool. Everybody always beats me into it. This is the way law plays out in our lives is that, oh, you're suffering from alcoholism, you should go to AA. Oh, you're suffering from uh, a debilitating disease, you should go to this place. We always have these, you should do this, you should do that. We are very performative. We're almost an entirely law-based society. And even like the, the inspirational things, there's a, a New York Times bestseller, which I don't think is a good book, but it's called Girl, Wash Your Face. Um, that's law, right? Um, we are very law-bent society in the ways that we try to earn and work these things out. If you have a problem, there's certainly somebody selling a law-like solution, and most of them always end up in don't eat bread anymore um, and buy some essential oils. Those are the two facts that come out of the law-based society is don't eat bread anymore. Uh, that's the pro- all our problems. But that is sort of, he says that he needs to get into this place. He needs to make this move. People have told me that if I'm the first one in there, I'll get healed. You can see how law, as we use it, is almost an error there, too. You know, we promise things that we can't keep up on when we use law as our primary advice mechanism. If you do these things, you'll get better. If you make these choices, if you go this way, right? And we're very good at this. I mean, I almost do it all the time, I think, is, is it's primarily an advice. After I ask you the question of do you want to be made well, I want to give you law to get better right after that. But what Jesus says to this guy is he doesn't say, oh, well, I'm great, I'll help you get in the water before anybody else gets into the water. But he tells him to pick up his mat and walk. As one who contains the words of life, who is life in John's gospel, is he commands him to get up and t- pick up his mat and walk. That, that's, that's the tension with law and gospel. And so what, what happens there is that Jesus gives gospel, right? The man is to healed. He is, he is told to participate in his healing a little bit, but really Jesus is the miraculous healer. He has heard the words of life that heals him. Gospel comes in the figure of Jesus, who often doesn't make you do a lot to participate in your healing. It's not a long advice column. It's not something you have to do, but it's something in which you are invited into being made well. Jesus preaches gospel to this man of this being made well in his life. And it's interesting because he says to pick up your mat of your mat with you. And I I think do people know what an Ebenezer is? It's a great line, and come thou found here, I raise my Ebenezer, and half the people are like, you pick up the guy from the Christmas carol and wave him in the air, um, and that is raising your Ebenezer, Scrooge. Um, uh, but the Ebenezer is, is this stone structure that they, they would build, and it, it first occurs sort of in 1 Samuel, of, of this, you know, they raise an Ebenezer to the victory to which God had helped them. What I want to say about the mat and us bringing it with us, and, and so these things, these healings, this healing in particular, we're talking about your life, right? Is the mat, for one thing, if you're an invalid, is, is, is a mess. It's probably stinky. It's probably been the one you've used for at least 38 years. It's probably the one in which you have been bedridden to. And Jesus asks him to carry it with him. He asks maybe perhaps us sometimes, to take what's been shame for us and carry it with us. And what I think these things can become for us is, is our own Ebenezer to which God has helped us, our own sign to the power of which God has done in our lives. See, if he calls life from death, if he makes lives new, if he makes us beautiful things and renew us, as the song we sang today said, we can build structures to that healing. We can build signs to that new life which God has made for us. We can do. That the object of shame can be something we carry away with us into a point to which God has done for us. And that's the exact thing that sort of happens this. This, this man is told right after this is that you should not be carrying your mat on the Sabbath. And, and that's the passage that Brian read for us during the worship set from Jeremiah is, is not carrying loads around your house, not, not carrying too much. And so this man is violating the Sabbath by carrying his mat. There's an interesting thing here is that they don't ask who healed you or why are you walking, which is the amazing part of the story, but they're focused on the why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Why is this going on? Now, it's interesting, if you look at Mark's gospel or the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the question of Jesus healing on the Sabbath is a question of authority. Who gave you the authority to do this? The question in John's gospel is a question of relationship. Because what the man says is, the person who healed me told me to do this. And their, their discomfort switches from the man to Jesus right after that, although they don't know who he is because he doesn't remember the man. But what they say when they come to Jesus is, he says, my father has been working, so I'm working today. For Jesus in John's gospel, this question of healing on the Sabbath is a question of authority, not, or not authority, of relationship, not authority. And there's this weird question of, does God work on the Sabbath in Judaism? One of my favorite stories I read about this week, this week is some Jews were in Rome and I think they were debating some of the Romans scholars and they were like, your God obviously works on the Sabbath. And the answer that the Jewish scholars came up for that is all of creation and the universe and the heavens is God's house. And so if he moves around in his courtyard and his house on the Sabbath, that can't be work. But it's merely him keeping house, tidying up which I thought was phenomenal answer to that question because it helps you think about the ways in which the, the realm of creation is God's already. This is God's house and this is God's world. A different philosopher, Jewish philosopher at the time, talked about how God is always still sustaining and recreating. Their questions were the three acts of birth, death, uh, birth and death that happen on the Sabbath. I forgot the third one. But they had these things that things still happen on the Sabbath, so God must still be active on the Sabbath. But what Jesus does is he attaches himself to God in that way. You've maybe heard it said that it, what's controversial for Jesus is that he calls God Father. Most of our reconstruction of first century Judaism would say that's not that controversial, that God, he would say Father about God. But that he would say, my Father, my Father would be a level of controversy. He's claiming some sort of individual identity to this Father himself. This is his Father. And then not only does he claim like an identity that makes God his unique father, my father, he actually claims another thing, is that God is working. And so as his son, I also work on this day. For these Jews at this time in this place, this is a severely controversial claim at this, and it says in our text that they go about killing him after that. And so Jesus has sort of claimed himself as the Lord of the Sabbath here, as he does in John's Gospel, but, or in the synoptic Gospels, but he claims that he's involved in the work of God. And as this passage goes on in the longer teaching, there's this thing I love, and it connects to this, to this next point, which is, see you are well, sin more and more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Is that Jesus in this next point, and we skipped over because we're doing the seven signs, we skipped over the famous passage in John 3.16 that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life or as I would prefer to translate it, the life eternal. What There's this weird passage as is, is he goes in further into John's gospel is he says that those who believe in him now pass from death to life. This is in chapter 5, the same chapter we're in. If you believe in Jesus now, it's almost like you've inherited the type of eternal kind of life now. That death hangs over you more as mere shadow, as mere events you must cross through, than it hangs over everyone else. That you've brought into the participation of what God is doing. Eternal life we often take, if you see the david referenced the super bowl today somebody probably will be holding up a john 3:16 16 sign and that normally is meant to mean like you need to escape from earth to get to heaven when you die but actually what jesus is talking about and what paul is talking about and what a lot of the new testament about is is that you can enter into that kind of life now you can enter into that kind of place already it's not an event that you wait for when you are dead but it's an event that can be participated in in your life today And that's what Jesus is offering in this next passage. See, you are well. See, you've been brought into the life of God. And you may think this sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you is, ah, see, even Jesus is using law at this point. But it's not actually that way. Here's the difference is that the New Testament is always asking this question of, so having been baptized with Christ in his death and raised into new life, so having been taught and brought from the depths up to new life, then having been transformed in seeing what Christ has done, having known that the grave holds no power anymore through the glorious resurrection of Christ, how can you go back to living your life the way it was? It's almost always a reminder See, if he just said, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, which if if, if he just left it there, that would be one thing. But what he says is, remember that you've been made well. Remember that your life's been transformed. Remember that something's happened to you that's changed your life. See, this is the call of the Christian life is, is this is where we turn away from law again and we go back to sort of this idea of which God is reminding us of what he's done. The life is a project thing, which you can, you can walk through the best-selling book of any bookstore and find many life is a project thing, is not actually what we're called to. Participating in life as we know the completed work of Christ being transformed by that element is actually what we're called into. And as you go further into chapter 5, and like I said, I wish we could, we could go further into it today, but that'd be cheating because we're doing the seven signs. Um, you'll see that Jesus is talking about this one who gives life in the midst of death. And not only that, there'll be a day in which they break open tombs together, him and the Father, and call out people into life see this is the god we worship in gospel law is is in in the reformation and today is still helpful but gospel heals luther had this had this sort of thing that every sermon contains law and gospel and i'm not as good as martin luther but he's dead you can't go to his church another spoiler alert um see i think these jokes are hilarious um but I majored in history. A guy at my last church, after he figured this out, bought me a, church th- a shirt that said, History major, I'd find you more interesting if you were dead. Um, <laughs> which explains my bad sense of humor, I think, to a large degree. Um, but uh, Luther thought every sermon has law and gospel. And the, the law, when you really go after law, even if you're doing well, cuts you at some point. It points out some sort of error in which it's impossible for you to fulfill all of it. And what happens is is then gospel comes in and heals. Gospel is the healing element of that. So as we find ourselves by our own pools, as we find ourselves caught in our own anguish, waiting for somebody to come and lift us to the place to which we have been told miraculous healings will happen, it's for us to look for Jesus. It's for us to look to the one who comes and asks, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made whole as older translations put it? And to be able to answer not with, well, we could answer like this guy with our excuse, "Yes, but there's no one else. How am I supposed to do it?" But when, in fact, the one who asks the question is the one who holds the keys to life and death, the one who invites you into a different kind of life now, the one who, who can transform that moment. And so we have a God whose work is to bring healing into these places, to bring healing into these spots of our lives, and then, of course, in return, to empower us to be like him. Christians are people who should not be fearful of going to the pools of Bethesda. They should not be fearful of the floors full of the lame and the blind and the unhealthy, but should be able to go there as a sign and a testimony to life should be able to go there and and if they can offer healing, they're called to that gift. But since many of us aren't, to offer the word of which God offers us new life, offer the word in which Jesus conquers death and the grave and invites us into eternal kind of life now that fulfilled in the future. And this is why on the Sabbath does Jesus heal all the time. There's two reasons, I think, is that the Sabbath is this perfection moment of God's creation. On the seventh day, God's rest. It's perfect. It's perfect. And so what happens is, of course, Jesus, God on earth, would set about setting things back to right on that day, of restoring them to what they were. And the second is is that the Sabbath brings about a restoration and a rest. We live in a world full of of systemic problems and real problems that create injustice for people to be able to live, to be able to move. Even when you're healed, somebody will point out, who told you to pick up your mat and walk out here? And what happens is, is, so of course Jesus goes about restoring on that day. Because it's a day of fullness, it's a day of rest, it's a day of which witnesses to the, to the rest and the restoration of what God promises to us. As so we find ourselves being able to go as those people to those places, not being bound to objects of law or advice, not kicking the person into the pool first so that they can receive healing, but offering them the glimpse of the fullness of the creation we await. As good as things can be now, you can be healthy, you can be beautiful, I can't. You can be smart, you can be wealthy. The life that we're offered after this is that, is that death comes for all of us. Sickness comes for all of us. But The life that we're offered after this is what we see in these healings. It's a life of the fullness of what God is going to do as he restores this place and brings us back into communion with him. So may we go forth as people who, who model that and trust in the word of Christ to be made well. In our own lives, may we pick up the mat and walk away healed, trusting in the word that we've heard from Jesus, but also in our own lives, may we trust in the good news that God has for us. Because here's the most amazing part about the gospel that we'll close with, is, is if you're rich, pretty, all those things, smart, beautiful, kind, average, like mean, just average, Um, you know, that's all good. But the only thing you have to be to participate in the gospel, and you'll see this in the rest of John 5 if you read it, is dead or sick or in need. See, all the ways we try to comfort us from those selves, those things is actually making us immune to hearing the good news of the resurrected life. You want to participate in that? The only way you get there is through death. So there's no amount of human achievement and upbuilding building you can do other than being dead. That's the only thing that gets you into this spot. 38 years lame is close, and so that's why Christ shows up here and heals this person as a sign to that life in which we await what God will do in the restoration of all things. Let us pray. God, you have set this creation in the world. It is as if if it is your house, and you work on it even today. But God, your grand goal is the reconciliation of this place, of our broken lives with other broken lives, and those broken lives with you. That our sickness can be a testimony to the mighty works that which you've done and will do in our lives. God, may you wake us up to hearing your call. May you wake us up to, do we want to be made well? We hear your voice to get up and pick our mat up and walk. May we be faithful to that. May we walk. May we go as those cured with witness to what God has done for us. And after that, may we find ourselves drawn more and more into the life of your son. So as he heals and goes to the places of death and disrepair, so too may we as witnesses to the love and the strength that he has, know that those places are not enemies to us but places to which we can witness to your eternal kind of life that you offer us now is a foretaste of what's to come. Pray this in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.